Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidence. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investment. Two housekeeping notes before we get into this week's podcast. First, if you are listening to this on the Perch Pod, you have the rest of this month, August, to switch over to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast. After that, we'll only be posting short clips on the Perch Pod. Um, Cognitive Dissidence is the home of this podcast going forward. It's where all of our content is going to be going forward, and there's a lot more exciting things to come. So please make the transfer over if you haven't. Second of all, thank you so much to those of you who have rated or reviewed the podcast. We've seen a huge uptick in that in the last couple of weeks. I still know, though, from looking at the stats that there are many hundreds more of you who have not yet done that. So if you can spare a couple seconds, uh, don't do it while you're driving or if you're, off, if you're out for a run right now listening to this, you don't have to do it right now. But if you could spare a couple seconds uh, just to rate the podcast, I can't tell you how much it does for us in general in growing the reach of this podcast. Uh, joining us on the podcast today is Roger Baker. He is the executive director at the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. Uh, Roger and I worked together at Stratfor over a decade ago, which is really hard for me to really conceptualize that it was that long ago. Um, Roger was the chief analyst at Stratfor when I was just a young intern. So he trained me in Stratfor's analyst development program. So for me, it felt like coming full circle, getting to talk to Roger. Um, I, I don't know that I'll ever treat Roger quite like an equal because he always felt like the person who trained me, but talking to him on an equal basis about a topic that we both love and have really given a lot of our lives to. Um, we recorded a first sort of part of this podcast on Stratfor Rain's podcast. So if you want to go over to Stratfor Rain and listen to the first part of this podcast, it's over there and you can listen to it. But here, Roger and I talk a little bit about geopolitical theory uh, before diving into some practical things about U.S.-China relations, Taiwan, uh, and the future over the next 25 years. So as always, you can write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments if you have any questions or concerns about the podcast or what we do at Cognitive Investments. I'm always happy to hear from listeners. Otherwise, take good care of each other. Cheers, and I will see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All right, Roger, picking up where we left off from the Stratfor Rain podcast, Rain Stratfor podcast, how should I, it, it, the, the Rain podcast, I guess is what we should talk about. It's really nice to have you here. Well, it's great to be here, Jacob. Um, I thought I would turn the tables right around back at you. And before we get into some like questions that I wanted to ask you, um, just sort of throw back at you, what is geopolitics to you? And specifically, I wanted to add on to that um, because you mentioned this in the podcast we did a, a, with Rain Stratfor, that um, you felt that you were in the Mackinder school of thought. Um, so I wanted to ask specifically why Mackinder, because I think I, I have a couple of his books. I think my giant head is blocking them right now, and the listeners can't see anything anyway. Only Roger and I can, can see each other. Uh, but I, I don't know. I feel like Mackinder's stuff, well, I'm not going to step on it. Why don't you tell us what geopolitics is, and then we can get into Mackinder. So I'd go, I'd go a couple things. I mean, at, at its base, I would argue that geopolitics is 
understanding the impact of the intersection of organized people and place over time. And so it emphasizes the role that place plays in shaping groups of people, in providing opportunity, in creating cost, um, uh, and that there's a time component in there. Um, geopolitics is a synthetic field of study uh, in the sense that it draws on um, politics, geography, history, technology, um, uh, sociology. Uh, it draws on uh, um, uh, military uh, dynamics. All of these different separate fields pull in into this central place that tries to synthesize the way in which these interact with each other, but always within a framework of geography and time. Um, and that's, that's the, the, the rough definition, I guess, I would give for, for geopolitics as a field of study. Why Mackinder? Well, one, that's the first gentleman I was introduced to. <laughs> um, uh, I, am, I, I look at Mackinder um, particularly because he did not consider himself a geopolitician. Mm -hmm. He considered himself a geographer. And the best I can tell from research, he only used the word geopolitics once in his career publicly, and that was in accepting an award for something. Um, but he didn't use the terminology at all. He considered his field geography. And if you go back even before what are considered his geopolitical writings, he talks about geography as this synthetic space, that there needs to be one space in academia with academia growing... Um, deeper and deeper and narrower and narrower. There needs to be one space that teases those all back together and creates a unified picture. And he's arguing this is the place for geography or what I would argue for geopolitics. Um, that's its role. And of course, he was arguing that at a time where the field of geography was going to be thrown in the garbage um, mm. because the perception was geography had done all it could do. They had already mapped the world. What else is geography going to do? And he was arguing that geography was more than uh, geology and physical space. It helped to understand people um, and therefore could also help you understand the future because you could see the differences in people in different places as they've been, for lack of a better word, evolved in relationship to their geography. And therefore, how are they going to respond differently to similar stimulus? And if you could lean forward like that, you could then conceptually make better policy decisions or at least more informed policy decisions, being aware of what the likely outcome was before you acted, rather than only acting on raw ideals or raw interest. Mm -hmm. And so in, in democratic ideals and reality, he really brings this to a... Um, to a, a fine point where he says, look, coming out of World War I or the Great War or the war to end all wars um, at the time, he says, if you act purely from a um, legalist, judicial, and ideological perspective in how you reshape Europe at the end of the war, you are likely to set in motion um, the conditions for the next war. But if you first and foremost understand the underlying reality and then 
try to achieve your ideological goals within the constraints of that reality, you are more likely to be able to achieve what you want at the end. Now, why Mackinder over other geopoliticians, and I know I'm talking too much now, um, is... is It's what you're here to do, Roger. You're here to talk. <laughs> right. Um, he is not uh, deterministic in his geopolitics. Hmm. Um, and one of the concerns that I, you know, in looking at some of the, the, the Nordic and, and Germanic geopolitics is that, well, on the one hand, they, many of them actually, uh, particularly the German school built a lot of, uh, its later concepts off of some of the, the ideas that Mackinder put forward from a geographic perspective. Um, but those schools tended to tie themselves to, uh, the organic concept of states that states are living organisms, and therefore states uh, uh, um, grow, they eat, they consume, they die. States are are the organism in themselves, and and effectively, then states not only have the the natural instinct, but the the right and responsibility to constantly expand and grow and consume. And and Mackinder does not seem to put that concept forward, even though he talks about. If he looks forward, there's a logic to, uh, if you take it all to its, its ad infinitum, to a series of global empires, um, he really does emphasize this idea of the role of um, people within it, as opposed to just the role of the state and finding that balance. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And if I had unlimited time, or if I won the Mega Millions seven hundred million dollar drawing uh, today, I have to go buy my tickets. A reminder to myself, um, I, I would sit down and, and do a comparative study of like Rousseau versus Locke and Mackinder versus uh, Chelan, and and talk about how continental philosophers and continental thought was always more about community versus. Um, I guess, should we call it island thought? I don't know if we want to call it Anglo-American thought in the end, but it's really about the geography of islands allowing you to think that way, more about the individual and more thinking in terms of everything from individual rights to what you're talking about, the individual um, actor. I also, just for the listeners, want to pinpoint one of the reasons I think it's so important to think about all of the things we're talking about. It's not just because Roger and I think geopolitics are super important. I mean, it is, uh, obviously. We're both biased to say that. But I don't know if, if you saw this, Roger. A couple of years ago, before he was um, advising Trump in the White House, Steve Bannon was throwing around Mackinder's name like it was nothing, like he'd read all of his stuff and like it informed some of his worldview. So some of what we're talking about here has made its way into the White House and into the top echelons of U.S. foreign policy. So I wouldn't say it's dominating U.S. foreign policy, but I think there is a faction within... U.S. foreign policy circles that thinks explicitly this way. And it's one of the reasons I think it's important to talk about it. I wanted to throw at you, though, I mean, the thing that Mackinder is most well known for um, is this geographical pivot of history argument in some ways. And I haven't done nearly as much reading of Mackinder as you have, but it's in some ways the, the my least favorite of anything I've read from him. It's sort of the most banal, the shortest, the most off the cuff. It doesn't have any of the depth of some of his other work that I've read, but it does seem to be the thing that is enduringly linked to him. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners what the geographic pivot of history is, whether you agree with my take or not, whether I'm, I'm shortchanging it, um, and, and what we should learn from that particular tract, if anything. So the, the geographic pivot of history is the first of three variations on a theme that Mackinder evolves and develops. It, it then turns into from pivot to um, heartland, and then he re-envisions the heartland in the midst of World War II um, and modifies its geography. 
in the in the initial pivot thesis, Mackinder is trying to highlight the role that geography has played in the past, um, effectively of different modes of economy and different organizations of state, and then how they interact. And as you noted before, um, Mackinder is of of a maritime heritage. Um, and interestingly, in the in the Pivot or Heartland thesis, he's looking at a continental construct. Mm. And, and a couple of the things that he highlights, um, that this pivot area, the initial one is not a forward-looking dynamic. It's saying, I think if I look at the relationship between geography and history, I can see a pattern. And that pattern is um, mobile uh, continental power moving out of a central redoubt into peripheral areas in a conquest, basically trouncing um, uh, sedentary agriculturalists um, over and over and over again, right? And then he looks at the geography of where these um, mobile forces come from. And he says that geography, if you look at the watersheds of that geography, it is inaccessible from the sea that this is a true continental, this is why he changes later to heartland when he's mm-hmm. talking about it from a from what we would now call a geopolitical perspective rather than a historical geography perspective, um, that this, this heartland is, is inaccessible from by maritime powers. In the north, because of the ice, uh, its river networks empty into the ice or into inland seas. In the south, because of the Hindu Kush and the Himalayas. Um, and its only opening are these couple of gaps in the West, right? Which we we talk about all the time, the Northern European plain and 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 things like that, the, the, that, that open east-west corridor that you see over and over again through history. And that, and what Mackinder then says is if I look at changing technology in the early, late 1800s and early 1900s, in particular, he's looking at the railroad. Hmm. Um, but not really looking at aviation or anything like that. He's looking at the railroad because that's the new technology, thinking of the Prussians, thinking of these other capabilities. He says, if this heartland power is able to build strong rail connection rather than horseman connection out to the periphery, it is a it exists in a defensible base that cannot be conquered by maritime power it therefore has internal lines of communication as it's pushing outward to conquer those those peripheral areas. And when it conquers those peripheral areas, and this is where he puts this heartland at the center of what he calls the world island, which is Europe, Asia, and Africa. People usually forget the Africa piece and think of just the Eurasia component, but Europe, Asia, and Africa. He says then that central power can control the, um, the population resources, the natural resources, the productive capacity of this world island, and by default, it would then be able to dominate the globe. Right now, is it? I, I, so I don't find it a, a banal concept. If you look at what he's trying to do and the way it is influenced, you know, you talk about Bannon throwing around Mackinder, but Mackinder is heavily influenced U.S. foreign policy. Since, especially since World War One, when there was a big resurgence of of looking at Mackinder, um, uh, uh, really, actually around World War Two, a big resurgence in the U.S. where the British didn't really pick him up, but the Americans embraced him. 
And this was because the, the Heartland and Pivot thesis he had seemed to be repeating itself first with Nazi Germany, which again, in the 1940s, he shifts his, the, the, the potential area of the Heartland to potentially include what the Germans were doing in conquering East. Um, and, and then with the Soviets, that you have this repetition of pattern. And today, the fear is Belt and Road Initiative is the next iteration of this thesis. Can you tie together the world island into a single economic block that then could push outward against global maritime? And that also contrasts the concept of, you know, that Mackinder points out in relation to these of the idea of the, the organizer versus the ideologue. And he largely attributes ideal, ideologues and ideology-driven policy as a maritime policy and, and autocracy and organization as a, as a continental theory or policy. And Mackinder, despite what some people argue, Mackinder is pro-democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he ultimately is, I mean, that's the point of his book, is if we're going to save democracy, here are the things we need to be aware of, because you can't just shove it down people's throats. <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, so I think that that, that that has shaped the way the United States looks. And if you think about U.S., interventionist strategy in Eurasia since World War I even. It is, it is about ensuring, it's that old British concept of balance of power, ensuring no single power is able to dominate the Eurasian space. Yeah, although I think apparently we need a remedial lesson on uh, shoving democracy down people's throats. I think apparently <laughs> we, we forgot that one. But okay, I'm chastened. I won't, I won't throw so much shade at, at McKinder anymore. But can but, I ask? But you're right. He's about? overused and he's exploited. He's, he's used yes. poorly. I think the, the overfocus on the heartland and the pivot misunderstands McKinder. McKinder wrote on economics. McKinder came up with the term manpower as a measure of economic capacity. Um, McKinder recognized that because geography was complete, that the map of the world was complete, that all territory was now claimed or occupied, that we were moving out of a world where there was some buffer space and into a world where every action by a power would reverberate globally. He recognized the, the coming of globalization, not only from a sense of economic opportunity, but also risk. Do you think that his theories are still, because you, you mentioned specifically, and I thought I thought this was a great point that isn't made enough, that he was thinking in terms of late 1800s technology. So the railroad was the thing that he was thinking about the most. Do you think specifically the, the, the heartland theory or any of these other things that you've spoken about, have they been overtaken by new technologies? Are they enduring enough to where he's still he's still relevant is it sort of half and half where where should we land in thinking about applying mckinder's analysis to a world that has technology that he for all of his uh farsightedness didn't even couldn't really couldn't imagine so i am i am contemplating declaring the end of the heartland thesis mm. um and you i'm declaring it, you, you the, heard it here first on the on the <laughs> cognitive dissonance but uh, but but I'm declaring the end of the Heartland thesis, not necessarily because of technology. So if you look at the, you know, aviation, did aviation fundamentally alter the concept of power? Well, in some ways, but in some ways it didn't, right? Um, Despite the the US or Israelis deciding that they were going to win all wars only by air power, in the end, it is always necessary to exert land power, right? You can't only win by air 
you can't only win by sea. Um, territory is territory. Geography still matters. Place still matters. Position still matters. So I think that air power did alter it. Missiles, space, things like that have altered it. But I think the most fundamental alteration has been the change in the Arctic climate. Mm. Russia is no longer hemmed in by ice on the north. Russian rivers now empty into accessible ports. Um, Russia is technically now vulnerable to maritime incursion. And the Russians recognized this long before the Americans or the Canadians or the, 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 the Nordic states recognized the strategic implication of climate change in the Arctic, where everyone else focused on the ecological impact and the social impact, the Russians focused on the strategic impact. And if you go back, you see them starting to rebuild their Arctic forces by, by the late 20 aughts and certainly in the 2010s. Um, as they're seeing this climate change and seeing that they have now one of the longest unprotected maritime borders out there. Um, it's also the center, though, of their resources, their natural resources. So from the Russian perspective, that opening of the maritime frontier, and if, if the, the, the predictions are right by 2035, 2040, um, it will pretty much be year-round maritime access, at least on the Russian side of the Arctic, um, that completely changes the concept, uh, the strategic concept of Russia uh, um, for hundreds of years in the past. Right, so I think that that is the the big um, change in the Heartland thesis that Russia is no longer um, secure in its northern flank and therefore always looking south. Russia has to look north now, not just for a few missiles and missile defense, but for true open transit. So the opportunities and the risks have now emerged. Well, and I mean as always seems to be the case with Russia's geography, they're screwed. I mean, they really, like, th this doesn't help them at all. A lot, the only time you ever hear this take is when people are talking about how the Russians are taking over the Arctic and they have, you know, 50 icebreakers and the U.S. has one. But the problem with the Arctic is the same problem they have with every single other uh, route to the sea that they have. It can be blocked by the United States on one hand, by Europe on the other hand. Um, I, I guess China could block it on the other hand, too. There's no real good way for them to use the Arctic uh, the other direction. It really is, I guess, another another weakness that they have to think about. I don't know how Russia continues to to balance all these weaknesses in the long run. It's it's, But I would argue that as a route, it is much more open than the real constraints that they've had in places like the Baltic or the Black Sea um, uh, or their their very narrow Pacific coast. So there are there are some there's some greater capacity there. But yeah, you've got to go through the Bering or the Barents, and and you you run into constraints in each of those areas. And then again, like I said, where you know yes, in World War II you supply the Russians through Archangel, and you sort of tap into the Arctic to 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 do it. But imagine if Russia's northern frontier is now open and vulnerable. Um, to, to the assertion of maritime power. And the Russians, for example, are in discussions with the Kazakhs now about potentially opening an inland port on the Kazakh-Chinese-Mongol border <laughs> because the rivers are navigable that far out to Russian ports in the Arctic. <laughs> and if you go back to the thesis of the, the role of the Mississippi in allowing the United States to, 
to develop and emerge. And the constraint on Russia, because its rivers were not conducive, and therefore Russia was pushed into east-west orientation, and rail orientation, and things of that sort, which it never fulfilled. Um, if you suddenly have north-south river connectivity, it potentially changes the opportunity in Russia. Now, is their population, is their economic, is their technology able to fulfill that? Maybe not. But then does that create a new potential stress for the Russian-Chinese relationship? Because for the longest time, China never wanted to rush into Russia, despite their large population. There was no opportunity. What if opportunity is opening up? Is that going to be the new tension spot between the Chinese and the Russians? Like you're starting to see the Chinese start to fill in on the Russian Far East. Yeah. And boy, they must be, I mean, I'm sure they were kicking themselves already for selling Alaska, but it must really stick in their craw that they, they sold the key to, to the Arctic actually being a useful uh, uh, entryway to the rest of the world for them. There, there was some Russian Duma guy who recently came out with some assertion that they need to take it back. <laughs> uh, well, they're, they're welcome to try any, any of the Russian listeners. I wouldn't advise it. Um, Roger, before I turn to picking your brain about some other stuff, um, I wanted to also ask you something that will be slightly nerdy and indulgent, but listeners, I promise it'll pay off um, in the end. Um, you were the one that taught me net assessment, and I've used it with every client I've ever I've done I've ever um, worked with. And usually, I have to spend the first hour explaining what the heck it is, and sometimes I don't even know what it is. It's it's kind of just a way of putting stuff together. So you asked me about political risk and its definition on your podcast. I thought I might ask you to tell us what a net assessment is and how you and I haven't talked about net assessment for years now. So how, if at all, since the last time we talked, um, your views on net assessments have evolved over the years? So, so I still use um, the model, you know, uh, we, we, our view of a net assessment is slightly different than a traditional net assessment because a traditional net assessment is a net, right? It's a net between two. It's a comparative assessment. And our net assessment is actually for a, a baseline assessment of a particular place, right? It's looking at a place um, from uh, the seven pillars of geopolitics, if we want to use you know, add, add numbers and, and things like that, right? First and foremost, what does the geography tell us? And geography, not just in the sense of topography, um, you know, but geography in the sense of rainfall, of subsurface minerals, of, of land cover, of transportation infrastructure, um, population density, all of these things start to give us an understanding of a space, right? The United States is not the United States. The view from um, the northwest corner of New Mexico is very different than the view from the center of Boston, right? Um, and, and if you look at the United States and you start laying over things like population density, transportation, infrastructure, um, uh, primary mode of economy, um, you know, these things, you're going to start seeing interesting differential patterns of different parts of the nation, right? And so using that same method to look at other countries, then go in and say, let's talk politics, economics, security, right? And and politics, which is, in each of these, look at them from an internal and an external point of view, right? Internally, what is politics? Well, politics is about power and power relationships, right? It's not just about the government or is this a democracy or an autocracy? It's, it's how is power moved? And power 
in many places is completely in the informal sector is almost as important or more important than the formal government sector. So politics, economic security. Um, then we look at um, society, which I consider its own bucket separate from those others. And all of these overlap each other. So that's that's a thing. But society, how does the society and structure of society work? And that's where you can get into interesting historical dynamics that last longer than shifts in the political dynamics, mm. right? There are deeper patterns in places than often what you see just on the surface of politics. Um, and being able to, to assess those and where does society lead politics? Where does it trail politics? Um, what When you have certain economic issues happen, how do different aspects of society react in different ways and what tensions or opportunities that create. Um, look at technology and the way technology is changing and evolving and altering the relative value of geography, accessibility or, or, or use or lack thereof, um, and looking at those, those components. Uh, and then um, history. And, and I use history in a couple ways. One is to say, um, nothing happens now just now. It's part of a flow. So I need to use history to understand where am I in the flow? You know, look for repetitive patterns. Uh, if I see a pattern, it doesn't necessarily mean it must keep repeating. But I need to understand why would there be that pattern that, that emerges? What are the underlying forces that create that up and down cyclical pattern? And are those forces likely to still come into play going forward? And I'm also able to use history to um, test theories. So I look at certain aspects of geography and structure and I say, my assumption would be if this is a if this exerts a force on the way in which organized population is going to perceive themselves from strength, weakness, cost um, dynamics, how would I expect them to act and respond? And I can look through history to see, do I see those or not? And if I don't, why don't I? What am I misreading about the space? Things like that. So then I use all of that to try to define the space. And then ideally what we can do is use that to say, if I push stimulus X, what is the most likely response Y? Hmm. Right? So use them as a way to, to not model in the sense of numerical modeling, but model in the sense of, of a, a richer understanding of the space, try to model um, responses to different stimulus or different actions. Uh, for the listeners, uh, you you did not see that Roger was so passionate here that his cat decided to make an appearance on the podcast, and we were very very blessed to have her or him. I have no idea, but um, <laughs> Roger, I I also know that. Um, well, I'll, I'll throw a question that I think I know the answer to, and it's probably going to tee you up to to knock it out of the park. But um, do you? It sounds like net assessment can only be used in relation to place. So, for instance, could you make a net assessment of an industry? Could you make a net assessment of a particular technology? Or do you think that is a place where the tool itself um, falls short? I think you can. So, so one of the things you know in 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 net assessments, I think from the last time we were working together. Um, well, well, the 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 nation, the state, is usually the 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 unit that we use. Um, they are not consigned to particular borders, 
mm-hmm. to particular political borders, right? You can look at regions, you can look at sub-regions. I, I worked with some universities and we did a net assessment of their campus. <laughs> That's fun. And and mapped out these different patterns and and how the the existing, the intentional uh, 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 transportation corridors weren't always the transportation corridors followed, right? Hmm. New paths emerge across grass rather than following sidewalks because of different uh, relationships that emerge between different buildings, right? So you can, you can apply it in different ways. I think you can apply it to industries. Um, they, they all have a geographic component as well, right? In, in an industry, uh, the geographic component may be about a combination of looking at uh, accessibility to resources, whether in the locality or whether in effective and easy transportation infrastructure. It may look at the um, the dynamics of uh, uh, trained or educated labor um, to be able to work or not work within that industry. Um, the, the the fluidity of it. It can look at things, uh, other aspects too, water availability. Mm. Um, that have an impact on the way in which these play. So, so you can do net assessments of uh, and take the the process and apply it in slightly different ways to to industries, to segments, to to um, non-state entities. Um, we've used it to to look at um, uh, uh, militant organizations uh, or things like that because they have they have a core geography and they have a diffuse geography. And their their capability and their actions and things are shaped differently based on where they are within that geographic realm. It's it's funny that the the thing you said about the college campus uh, made me think of my own time in college, which was when um, the Israelis and the Palestinians. I mean, they're always fighting with each other. But when I was in college, they were in in one of their uh, you know Gaza Israel Gaza wars. Um, and there was there was a lot of unrest on the campus between Jewish student groups and between Muslim student groups, and each one would sort of have their week on the on the quad. So you know, one one week the you'd have this uh, these posters up with this many missiles and all these things that the Palestinians are doing. Then the next week you'd have these these are the things the Israelis are doing, and it's terrible. And my suggestion to them was that we should really just we should we should take the quad and we should make the quad sort of the map of Israel and we should have a corner here that is the Gaza Strip and a corner here that is the West Bank and we can pelt people with water balloons from the Gaza Strip and then go in and you know, destroy their like a, a, this was not well received and I'd probably get kicked out if I even suggested it if I was still <laughs> in university but I like the idea of using micro examples to make geographic arguments um, we've talked a little bit about the abstract stuff I'd like to lean in now to applying some of this um, and you have the the benefit of some hindsight um, and so I, I want the first question I wanted to ask in terms of applying some of the some of the concepts that we've talked about is, um, you know, how, well, first, how long have you worked at Stratfor Rain? Is it is it twenty five years the the way LinkedIn says, or is it even it'll, longer? It, it'll be twenty five years this December. We'll have completed a full twenty five years. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's remarkable, and congratulations! Like you should be like proud of that. I think, but um, I wanted to ask, what is the thing that has changed the most in the world since you started? at Stratfor Rain? And then what do you think is the biggest thing that will change in the next 25 years? I think what's changed the most is the the perception of a unified, victorious, single model for global organization 
conceptually the the North Atlantic um, political economic model, right? That that liberal economic political trade model. Um, you know that if if you go back to the mid '90s and the late '90s, uh, it was it was a truism in some ways that that model was the inevitable direction of the world. Um, and every country was going to follow it. And that's what shaped so long of US-China policy, for example, right? So long as we keep working with them and talking to them, they'll eventually become Democrats too. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the recognition that that is not universal, despite the fact that there may be a, a, a proselytizing desire to make it universal, um, I think is one of the biggest changes uh, in the world. Um, and, and in then, and therefore in our interaction with the business community or other places like that, the recognition that, um, you, you simply can't operate under one assumption of a, of a future global path that, that fragmentation, localized dynamics matter a lot and really shake things up. So I think that that's, that, that would be my answer to the first half. Uh, most important change or most significant change of the next 25 years. Um, I hate to take that and then push it forward 25 years because <laughs> that goes against everything I believe in. But, but we are in, we're in the opening stages of the return to uh, true multilateralism. Right. And, and, if we think about the the first four hundred years of, of a, 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 a a multipolar world, it was very violent and competitive and chaotic. The 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 anomaly being that the Cold War was actually a relatively stable period of world history, of modern world history. And then the post-Cold War was perceived as being stable. There was a lot of localized conflict. Um, but even things like 9-11, it, it elicited a U.S. response, but it wasn't necessarily existential, although at the moment of action, it had to be perceived that way. So we're moving back, I would argue, into a world where things like we're seeing in Russia, Ukraine may not be so anomalous. Um, the, the, uh, assertion of national economic security and therefore, um, banning certain exports or, or it's tighter and tighter trade restrictions and things like that. It, it may not be so anomalous. These are, these are the results of moving back into this true multipolar system. And it starts breaking down that, that, um, sense of, of unity that, and, and when you have more recognition that that is breaking down, it then facilitates it. And the more we see it happen, the more likely it is to continue happening. I feel like one of the truisms about the reason for the relative stability of the cold war is the advent of nuclear weapons. Um, and we certainly have never had a multipolar geopolitical era where, nuclear weapons were around or where there was any technology that was even analogous in a similar way. Um, do you think that nuclear weapons limit the extent to which competition and 
and and violence can happen in this multipolar era? Do you think that actually nuclear weapons get used in ways that are unimaginable now? How, how do you think about that particular technological phenomenon in this world? So, well, I would hope that they still exert the same um, deterrent component that they did in the Cold War. Couple of things to, to that I would I would consider one. Despite their deterrent capability in keeping direct conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union down, they did not quell proxy conflict, right? And they actually didn't quell uh, border or near neighbor action by nuclear powers against non-nuclear powers, right? Including the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Um uh, anything that happened at, right at the end of the, uh, World War II in, in Western Europe, um, you know, n- none of those were precluded by the existence of nuclear weapons, nor is, you know, the 2014 and now action in Ukraine. It shapes the likely response by the other nuclear power. But as you note, you know, that was a bipolar nuclear system. China is in the midst of a massive nuclear breakout. China is moving away from minimal deterrence to a large nuclear capability. Most nuclear doctrine has been based on a bilateral structure. Hmm. I don't know that there is um, the full extent of how to manage this the 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 three three big nuclear powers plus an, an expanding number of small nuclear powers, right? In some ways, the small nuclear powers remain pretty deterred because if they utilize the weapon they, they, against a large power, that that's the end. They're right; they're they're completely gone. But they use them as a deterrence against conventional force. Right? Um, you know, the the North Korean lesson from Ukraine, which was the North Korean lesson from Libya and Iraq, was you have to have these weapons; you can never give them up. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, because you, if you don't have it, the nuclear power will feel confident invading you, and your nuclear partner will not feel confident countering the other nuclear power. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, to your point, in some ways, we could even argue maybe that nuclear weapons increased proxy conflict because what they did was they made it so that the United States and the Soviet Union wouldn't actually duke it out um, head, head to head. And I assume the Chinese, I mean, the, the war that nobody talks about enough is the Korean War, which I, I can't think of a, of a more significant conflict during the Cold War than the Korean War. And everybody seems to skirt over it. And that was really, it was a straight on China-US war, but China didn't really have nukes at that point. So and I, I wonder mm-hmm. in some ways if they learned that lesson then that they were never going to get taken advantage of that way. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, the Chinese felt that they were duped by the Russians at that point, <laughs> by the Soviets in part. Um you know, the, the, and they were face to face with the U.S. Now they claimed they weren't. They claimed it was volunteers. I mean, if mm-hmm. you want the origin of Little Green Men, there it is. Um, it it it, uh, it was this this volunteer force. But yeah, they they did. The U.S. and the Chinese went head to head. The U.S. put lots of constraints on its own forces. So because the Chinese played coy, the U.S. limited its own ability to strike inside China. So all of those bridges along the northern border, you know, they ran parallel to the river 
um, rather than perpendicular to the river uh, when they were bombing them. Well, you have a less likely chance of hitting your target. Um, you're under uh, anti-aircraft fire from the other side of the river, and you're not allowed to fire back, right? Those limitations. So there was, there were even then, the U.S. put some constraints on its willingness to act on the Chinese. Um, it also constrained the Taiwanese, uh, the nationalists in Taiwan, who thought about making a move on southern China at the time. Um, but I think you're right that that the the nuclear power may actually make these proxy conflicts increase and and create a lot of caution in the way other people respond. And that's the lesson China's trying to push on Taiwan, right? Mm-hmm. That that you can't truly trust the United States to come in because they're not going to risk nuclear confrontation with China over a little island right off the Chinese coast. Yeah, well, that I'm going to skip ahead to that question then, because this was one of the things I wanted to ask you, which is, is there any path for the U.S. and China to avoid great power conflict in the decades that are ahead of us? Um, and I mean, a lot of that question is probably going to go to Taiwan, but but where are you on that? Do you think there's a path for them to avoid conflict, to have, I mean, we're obviously not going to be in a Cold War dynamic because it's not going to be bipolar, but is there a chance for China and the U.S. to to work together or the the metaphor i've been using is that all the exit ramps for getting away from that conflict we we seem to have passed most of them maybe we can construct a few more before we actually crash into the side of the mountain but i'm i'm increasingly pessimistic about that are are you as well or do you see a path to not not friendship but at least sort of pragmatic dealing with each other yeah so so you know as i as i will emphasize over and over again i do not subscribe to any form of determinism um uh, and therefore, I'm not a, a keen fan of the Thucydides trap uh, construct or anything like that. That sort of says there is no off. Um, one of the things I think we've, you and I have mentioned this before. What you know, in the last discussion, um, we cannot ignore the human element in geopolitics, and and there are places for for big shifts and adjustments and changes. Right. Um, so I do I think that there is no path. Uh, no, I don't think there's no path, but I, but like you, the trajectory is there for a continuation, if not an increase of competition. And part of that, you know, when we look at Taiwan, you know, I don't look at Taiwan from the viewpoint that I I hear a lot of people do. Well, China used to own it and they have the century of humiliation and they want it back for political reasons. I look at Taiwan from raw strategy, Yeah. right? Taiwan is the unsinkable aircraft carrier off the Chinese coast, but the Taiwan Strait, and even if you go between Taiwan and the Philippines, that's the flow of most maritime traffic through the South and East China Sea. It passes that spot. If a foreign power has close relations and controls or can utilize Taiwan, it splits the Chinese coastline in half. If the Chinese hold Taiwan, they can exert power across the entire South China Sea to the Philippines, and they have the ability, doesn't mean they will choose to, but they have the ability to shape and interdict trade and therefore to strangle Japan and Korea. Um, And so this this is a... critical strategic issue. When we think about the Japanese striking at um, Pearl Harbor, right, to keep the United States back, but what are the other places they go after? They go after Singapore, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Why? Because those create the the entry point 
and and the crossbar point to that that north south trade route. Um, all the raw materials in the south, all the industrial capacity in the north. So it's hard to see that the Chinese can't give up on the space, and the U.S. can't give up on Taiwan either. The the most effective course for both countries is status quo. But politics and social politics in both countries is starting to pull them away from being able to accept status quo, even though raw strategy says that's the best solution. Can I push back against that a bit? Why is why is status quo the best thing for China? I get why it's the best thing for the United States, but isn't isn't the existence of Taiwan, to your point, just a ro- I mean, the point at which it becomes a, an emblem of humiliation is when China's pretending to be a great power and yet it can't even control this island that's right off its right off of its coast. It's as if Cuba was under, you know, control of a US enemy. Well, but I'm not talking about a ta- status quo is not Taiwan controlled by a third power. It's Taiwan just sitting there, just like Cuba is just sitting there. The U.S. is not any less a great power for the fact that Cuba is still Cuba, <laughs> um, right? Uh, despite the fact that if you think from a traditional strategic point of view, Cuba has the ability to block the the Florida Strait and to shut off all maritime traffic from the Mississippi to the Atlantic. <laughs> um, you know, that's why it was such a strategically important thing. And yet the United States is not a lesser great power because it doesn't control Cuba. So I think from the Chinese, there's not a requirement to control Taiwan unless you are to the point where you need to assert control over the entire maritime space in your near abroad. Um, The cost of achieving that is very, very high. And that's why I would argue, at least for the near term, from the Chinese perspective and from the US perspective, from a a, a reality point of view, um, status quo benefits both and doesn't hurt either, except maybe from an ideological point of view, Hmm. right? Um, But again, if you look at uh, social politics in both countries, they're starting to pull the governments and the militaries in a direction that may not match strategic dynamics. And and I would wave my, my democratic ideals and reality and McKinder's warnings of the past that when you let that ideology drive without thinking of the underlying strategic structure, you may find yourself in a crisis down the road that you could have avoided, but you're now stuck in the middle of. Yeah, although this is the other problem with the status quo, because and, and tell me if you agree with this, the status quo also involves Taiwan developing a more independent sense of identity. The generation that sort of saw itself as both Taiwanese and Chinese appears to be dying out. And there is a move, it feels like in Taiwan or a mood that is a little more independent minded, that is more skeptical of the mainland, especially after everything that's happened with Hong Kong. Um, To your point, I guess it doesn't, I guess it doesn't really matter from a strategic level for Beijing, how the Taiwanese feel about themselves. Um, But could it create political problems if Taiwan is saying, we want more than Pelosi visits, we want a nuclear deterrent of our own, and we want to really lean into having a military force of our own? Is that the trajectory of the status quo right now, or am I giving it, am I, am I overestimating what Taiwan's own sentiments are? Well, my argument would be that would be a break with status quo. It would, okay. Right? That's the evolution. Now, um, if you look at the demographics of Taiwan, this is the long-term path right the 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 part of the population that considers themselves part of china versus the part of population that considers themselves taiwanese um 
that 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 Chinese population, you know, the nationalist population that moved over in forty nine, um, that is not the bulk of the population anymore, and that's their children and their grandchildren now who are the bulk of the population, and that grandchildren generation, they, they have no connection to the mainland. Their connection is Taiwanese, right? They they are Taiwanese. So down the road, demography does ultimately start to tease this further and further away from any potential for peaceful unification with the mainland. Okay. And again, that's a, that's a down the road dynamic, which does then later put that changed pressure on the Chinese, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but economically, Taiwan remains heavily, heavily tied and dependent on China. And it's not clear they can break that economic dependency. And that gives the Chinese an element of leverage in um, Taiwanese politics because politics is shaped by money. Hmm. Um, and, and those industries still have, even if they don't have to be, they don't have to be pro-China. They just have to be anti-independence um, and, and demand status quo. And I think the other thing is the Chinese have other, they still have tools shy of military invasion, mm-hmm. right? And it was really interesting watching this Pelosi dynamic play, right? There's no pressing strategic need for the Speaker of the House to go to Taiwan. That's not a strategic imperative for the United States. That's an ideological play and probably even just a congressional or personal ideological play, right? Um, And her previous meeting was sort of quiet and then suddenly was going to happen and canceled because of COVID, okay? And the Chinese were not quite prepared for it. The Chinese have since I can't 100% guarantee this, but I'm pretty confident. They were the ones who signaled this idea that, well, if she flies in, we may just have to declare the AD is active, a no-fly zone, and intercept her aircraft, right? That's a physical coercive threat. Now, you could call China's bluff, okay? What are we, are, are we is it, but do you send military escorts for a private visit by a congressional delegation to Taiwan, um, maybe not. Do you? What do you do if China then demands that she land on the mainland and pushes the plane down? Is she a hostage? Um, all of these things, and so the 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 number the the benefit of the visit versus the potential complications suggest from a strategic point of view, just don't do it. Now, the president came out and made some public statement about that. Um, maybe it could have been done in private. <laughs> um, the- no, but but that, that statement was really confusing. Like, I mean, Biden probably, I mean, I, I guess I can't say this for certain, but he, I would assume he could have shut that down. But instead, he decided to come out and say, no, the Pentagon would rather not. Right. What, Which what is, is a very that? interesting... <laughs> statement. But if you think about China's ability at coercive behavior, right? If this does not happen, if she does not go, then China has, even if it's a small point, China has shown Taiwan that it doesn't need to invade. It has the coercive capacity to Mm -hmm. minimize the U.S. intervention, interventionist policy. I made air quotes there. Um, but but to minimize that policy, 
And therefore, China is effective. And the only reason China can be effective in that manner, very different than the 1990s, is that there is a perception that their capacity, their military and security capacity, is now much greater than it was 20, 30 years ago. And therefore, they could potentially live up to this. And that's a big change in, in the region as well. The, the gap between Chinese capabilities and Taiwanese capabilities has, has expanded dramatically. The United States, well, it has, you know, it's long had nearly 60% of its capacity in the Pacific theater anyway, you know, the, the pivot notwithstanding that was happening anyway. Um, but it's, it's much less concentrated in what the Chinese are able to do in that geography, hmm. right? And so by having that capability, they're able to exert political influence without having to carry out the physical action because the physical action becomes believable. Hmm. Um, we'll, leave, we'll leave China and Taiwan there. Um, I wanted to ask you one more big question before we for a small one and we say until next time. Um, the first is, uh, so in the same vein of the, the next 25 years question, what is a, and I don't mean any of the big powers, so what is sort of a middle to, to lower tier power that you're optimistic about for the rest of this decade? And then also on the flip side, what is a, a middle to lower power that you are pessimistic about um, the rest? Of, and I'll let you define whether you want to define that in economic or political, or whatever terms you want to use there. What's, what's a country you're feeling good about and a country you're worried about? I'm going to get myself in trouble with this one because I'll be uninvited to some countries. And uh, That's why you'll uh, always be invited back to this podcast, though. And isn't that so much better? Isn't that, isn't that so much better? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I look at places like Poland. There's a lot not going for Poland. Hmm. But because it sits very clearly, um, almost more than any other country, right on that front line. Um, and also, though, has a pretty substantial um, uh, uh, population, economic capacity, and things like that. I, now, I don't say Poland is going to be the dominant force in Europe or replace Germany as the, as the center of Europe, but I think as a, as a place of influence, you know, as the Europeans become more re-aware of Russia as a, as a strategic threat, not just those annoying people to the East. Mm -hmm. um, Poland will be able to uh, demand more of Europe in its relations with Europe, right? Um, and of the United States. I think that the U.S. is very serious about this idea that the U.S. should put its attention on the Pacific and leave the bulk of the European defense to the Europeans. So Poland is able to utilize its geography as a way to play these other powers and make some, make some gains from them economically, militarily, strategically, um, at a cost of being the front line against the Russians, yeah. right? There's a, there's, a, there's a cost in there. So I look at places like that. Um, I'm, I am constantly back and forth on optimism and pessimism about Turkey. Now, all of these, some of these are going to sound familiar from, from the, 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 the next hundred years, but, but they keep playing in these spaces, right? These, mm -hmm. these intersection geographies, the places that are stuck at the intersection of other big powers or at the flow 
of 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 power, right? Um, you know, you look at a turkey. The the capacity wise, they're just a mess <laughs> internally, but they seem to be playing punching above their weight all over the place. In the Caucasus, which are critical to Russian security, the Turks outmaneuvered the Russians. Right, that that was a stunning move, and now they're exploiting that to try to tie up with the Chinese for the Trans-Caspian connectivity. Right, to be the link between China and Europe, and Turkey is able to play its its pretend independence. Right, we have the S four hundreds. And new F-16s. Right. We we can right. Yeah, we don't get the 35, but we get all this. Other, we're, we stay in NATO, but we don't have to act like NATO, right? We can be this this bridge space. So they have a, a capability. Indonesia, mm. um, as a as a uh, a huge human capital pool, um, rising urbanization, rising education, um, lots of resources, a relatively you know, new but relatively effective capacity to demand that uh, rather than just being a raw material exporter, that investment starts to go into primary processing, which then can start to lead you down that next path, that next path. Now, they're ridiculously vulnerable in the maritime space, um, but I think that they, they, again, are one of these places that has the ability to draw on both the Chinese and the West um, and exploit those those gaps amongst the larger powers. Let, let, let's let's stay on them for just a second because I don't know if this client listens to this podcast. And hello, you know who you are if you're listening. But they will they will be surprised to hear a pro Indonesia voice on the podcast because I've been very skeptical about Indonesia in general. I accept all of your arguments about their human capital and the potential, but it seems very hard to get away from the fact that I'm not even really sure how Indonesia exists as a single coherent entity. Um, like ge- geographically, Indonesia is one of those places that doesn't make any sense to me at all, which maybe is a signal that I'm underestimating them because they have been able to cobble it together. But tell me about what about Indonesian society allows them to overcome what on paper look like insurmountable geographic obstacles. You know, I worked, I worked the entire end of Suharto and, and Su- or Sukarno, or Suharto regime and the collapse and the rebuilding of Indonesia. And Every expectation, everything I laid out at that time was for the disillusion of Indonesia. <laughs> that that the underlying dynamics would would fragment, and you would see an Indonesia that looked like um, the former Yugoslavia, right? That it of all places, Indonesia is like that, right? Because Indonesia was never a. It's not a single entity. It was stuck together. It wasn't even stuck together by one country. It was stuck together by a couple of countries, right? Who then glued it and said it was a thing. It's a, it's a post-colonial construct, is what Indonesia is. Indonesian nationality is a post-colonial idea. I'll never get invited to Indonesia now. Um, but um, but you're right that it it looks ridiculously fragile, right? And there's such an over-concentration of power in Jakarta, and I'm still not sure the moving of the capital will be functional or or work. And I've seen other, you know, South Korea has not done a really good job with the moving of the capital. Myanmar moved the capital only so they could have a coup and hide. <laughs> um, you know, these moving of capitals don't necessarily really change the economic dynamic relationships in the countries. But um, I think from a, from a, a, a capacity... And uh, uh, they 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 have somehow held it together. Um, uh, 
there is regionalism, but not such strong regionalism that it leads to sustained independence movements. Even things like the Free Aceh movement have pretty much dwindled. Um, the Free Papua movement is there, but it's not powerful and strong. And there's not a lot of either autocratic or democratic support for the independence movements in Indonesia um, that give them that external support. And none of them really tie into the great um, religious um, schisms. So they don't have those, those types of support to pull. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're very localized. So I think that they'll, they'll pull through. Their, their big challenge, again, is, is maritime security. The Indonesian government doesn't even know who lives on some of their islands. <laughs> they're constantly finding people on islands that they thought were unoccupied, and they're not sure where those people came from and what they're doing there. So that's the that is the challenge, but so long as they can keep it fuzzy, it's okay. There's you know the only land border they have to, they have the two land borders to worry about the the PNG land border, which is a bit tense out there and, and has an impact on resources, and then the land border with um, Malaysia in uh, you know and and up in Borneo, and that's got a lot of you know mountainous terrain and things. I know both the Indonesians and Malaysians may or may not have moved armored vehicles and. And, and armor there over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Um, but but again, it doesn't seem to be the type of geography where the populations are pushing up against each other and therefore you have likely um, spillover conflict. Mm -hmm. Any others on, on your list you want to talk about? Um, I'm very concerned about Korea. Hmm. And, and unfortunately, I'm supposed to go there this year, so we'll, hopefully they're not listening. Um, I'm concerned about Korea because as we watch um, this this competition and the the rise of Japan, the reassertion of Japan, the the rise of China, that role of the United States, Korea may find itself being forced to choose sides or to try to become neutral. Neither of which necessarily give it the economic and security strength that it needs. And the path, I think that the what I was seeing. 10 years ago of, of a possible path toward accommodation between the North and the South may be fragment, fracturing again and, and may not be as possible as I was seeing, and therefore Korea gets stuck. So they're a direct competitor with Japan. Their advantage is they, they have still a, a tiny bit better population, natural population growth rate than the Japanese, but not a lot. Um, they're both isolated, but the vulnerability of Korea is that it also has that land border. Whereas Japan is purely that maritime space, um, and it, and it it gives Japan a different capacity for for defending and securing itself. So, Korea is a place I'm keeping an eye on. I used to be really positive about East African integration. Um, I should have understood some of the uh, the political and social dynamics there. I think the 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 underlying potential is there, but it doesn't mean it can be capitalized on. And the same thing in watching South Africa. The, the underlying potential is always there, but, but the social political dynamics are simply not allowing it to, to, to capitalize on its on place. And this is where, again, back to geopolitics, place doesn't dictate success. It offers opportunity and cost, but it's up to the, 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 the organized people to take advantage of that effectively. Yeah. Um, well, you preempted my what my last question was going to be about Korea. So I'll, I'll ask you one more on your list, which is um, and here's a country that I'm I'm increasingly optimistic about, both from an investment point of view at CI and just kind of in general from a geopolitical perspective, which is Brazil. 
And I mean, Brazil gets a lot of, of shade from geopolitical analysts. I mean, a former colleague of ours, Peter Zihan, in his book basically just said, you know, Brazil is on the verge of falling apart. If I, if I want to summarize the argument he made in the book, I feel like he's been making that argument for a while, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but it seems to me that Brazil has a lot going for it. And when I actually look around at the world, Brazil seems to me, and there are a lot of differences. I'm not saying Brazil and the United States are the same, but I feel like they have some very interesting similarities in the sense that they're both true melting pots of, of a society. They both seem to have a need to push West. Um, and I mean, saying manifest destiny is a little bit too small, but the thing that Brazil's never been able to do is really assert political and economic influence over the Rio de la Plata and then become that major power that pushes to the West. And if Argentina is just going to continue to circle the drain here, could be a significant opportunity for Brazil to finally complete it and become a major power that is separate from all these things that are going around in the world. So do you have a view on Brazil at all? I, I don't have the answer on Brazil. What I've been looking at with some of our folks here is the, the question I've been raising and, and now I've really got to be thinking about that with the shift in, in for example, Colombian politics. Was Brazil or Colombia going to be the one that starts to um, assert dominance over the northern tier of mm. South America? That, that becomes that, that influence. Which one reaches over? And the, the, big, the one in the middle is, of course, the Venezuela. Who's the one who ultimately becomes that, that connector? Um, so I, I, the, the other constraint, I guess, on Brazil, and again, it shouldn't be seen as a, as a complete constraint, is, of course, linguistic. Um, when you compare it to the rest of the continent, it, it does happen to speak the wrong language. Um, uh, well, those but, but Bra Brazil them. is also large enough and powerful enough to make the argument that the rest of the content is the continent, continent speaks speaking. the wrong language. Yeah. Um, so resource wise, certainly, I think we've seen some more infrastructure development. Um, my understanding is there's still a there's still some internal diversions, north south dynamics, things like that. Um, that aren't fully resolved in Brazil, um, but maybe not to the point of, you know, d destroying the country or or completely making it um, uh, incapable. Uh, and I'd watch the Brazilian relation with the Europeans. You know, the, the Brazilian promontory is closer to Europe than it is to the United States. We're constantly thinking of Brazil in a north-south orientation. Should we be thinking of Brazil in a in a northeast-southwest orientation? Um, as an alternate. And then finally is, you know, because of its location, is Brazil able to tie in with Chinese investment and, and resource consumption? It does a little bit right now, particularly with, with foodstuffs, but is there space for a greater connectivity or is, or, or are the Chinese going to focus uh, west of the Andes? Roger, you've been so generous with your time and I appreciate it. Um, and let's do this again. This is not, this is not the only time. I hope you'll come back on. Oh, certainly. Thank All you, right. Jacob. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. 
The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.